0: Have you come to adore Christ this morning? I hope that you have come for that purpose, and I hope that you have done that. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Tricked you, didn't I? I thought we were going to Genesis. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And once you get there, if you have one of these, you can put your finger there. And if you're using your phone uh, or something else, you can just jump over to Hebrews chapter number 11. So 1 Corinthians 15 and Hebrews chapter 11. I hope you've enjoyed the series so far, Lineage of Hope. It's hard to believe that we're already halfway through. Um, We've gone through four uh, figures in Luke 3, coming counting down from Adam down to Jesus Christ. And we looked at four of them. First of all, we saw in Adam, we saw the need for a better representative because Adam's representation caused us to be sinners and caused us to face, face death. Yet Christ represents us before the Father, procuring for us freedom from sin and life eternal. And then after that, we looked at Enoch. We saw the need for a better righteousness. Although Enoch had a form of righteousness, he was still a descendant of Adam and was still a sinner. Yet Christ has perfect righteousness, which he imputes to us. Then we saw Noah and we saw the need for a better rescue as the ark only served to save physically a few people from a physical judgment. Yet Christ saves us spiritually from an eternal judgment. And then last week we saw Abraham, and in him we saw the need for a better requirement. As Abraham's obedience is not the thing that earned him favor with God, but rather it was faith in God's promises. And so like Abraham, it is not our works that save us, that redeem us, but rather faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to Abraham's promised son, Isaac, which is why I had Eric read that passage from Genesis. We won't go back through that one. Hopefully, you you got the picture. We went through that a few years ago when we uh, went through the book of Genesis. So hopefully, you remember that story very well. But we'll be looking at Isaac this morning. And Isaac is one of the more clear types of Christ in the Old Testament. It is one of the ones... Uh, that that we really see a lot of parallels between Isaac and Christ. Obviously, a type we know from Hebrews is is a shadow. It's something that is that is like the good thing and the perfect thing that would come, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why uh, we keep using this word "better," right? Because these types are are just almost like in some ways, not even <laughs> like, uh, but they're they're just types. They're just shadows of the one who is to come, and and. Isaac is one of those types of Christ that we look at and we see a lot of similarities. In fact, he's one of the ones mentioned in that song that we've been learning, uh, Christ the True and Better. I think it's the, the second verse, it says this. <clears throat> Christ the True and Better Isaac, humble son of sacrifice, who would climb the fearful mountain there to offer up his life, laid with faith upon the altar, father's joy and only son, their salvation was provided. Oh, what full and boundless love. So we see this very close-knit relationship between Isaac as a type of Christ and Jesus Christ. We see him as a promised son. Uh, It's interesting there that that even in Hebrews and even when God is talking to Abraham, he calls him his only son. Uh, Now, we know that he wasn't technically his only son. He was uh, his second son because Ishmael was born outside of God's will, outside of the promise. And so when God says his only son, he doesn't mean only, only. He means the one that I gave you, the one that was promised, the one through whom I have promised to build you a great nation, the one through whom would eventually come the Messiah. He was a, a promised son that was provided by God to a couple of very old people. who who were beyond the age of of having children, and yet Isaac was the promised one, and Jesus was the promised one from Genesis chapter 3, promised to Adam and Eve that one day God would send a son, the seed of the woman, and he would crush the serpent's head. So they are promised sons. They are sacrificed sons. Isaac, as you heard in the story in the verses read earlier, was offered by his father in obedience to God's command to show that he truly did fear God. This promised son that God had given to him, the one that had all these things that were, that were supposed to happen through him, God says, sacrifice him to me. And Abraham obeys and offers his son up to God. And Jesus is the sacrifice son. As we've seen in Hebrews over and over, the comparison between the sacrifice, the Levitical system, and Jesus, the perfect lamb, the son of God, slain, sacrificed for the sins of mankind. They are obedient and humble sons. We see Isaac here showing no sign of struggle, uh, we don't know what that looked like. We, we see earlier in that passage, he's asking Abraham, Abraham, he says, where, where is the sacrifice that we're going to sacrifice, Dad? You know, we've got the wood and, and the fire, and I'm not, I'm not seeing any animals. Um, and what did, what did Abraham say? He said, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. And yet when they get up there, he lays the wood on the altar, and he binds his son he binds his son and we, we see nothing in there about struggle. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would have a hard time with my dad building an altar and then binding my hands. That would, that would be a little uh, curious, especially if he hasn't told me exactly what's going to happen, what, what he's thinking. We don't have any form of communication between this. We just see Abraham's obedience and we see what appears to be Isaac's humble obedience to his father's will and his father's plan. And we see that in Jesus Christ as well as the New Testament tells us he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, did not open his mouth. In the garden, he said, not my will, but thine be done. The humble and obedient son. Isaac is a type of Christ. And both of these sons were revelations of their father's love and faithfulness. The sacrifice of Isaac showed Abraham's love and faith to God. His obedience to God showed that he feared God, that he reverenced God. And God's sacrifice of Jesus Christ shows God's love for us and his faithfulness to fulfill the promise way back in Genesis chapter 3. So we see these correlations between Isaac and Jesus. However, I want to look at an aspect of this correlation that is often overlooked. Uh, often we don't, we don't really notice this aspect. We, we realize it in, in listening to the story and, and reading through the story. We, we recognize it when somebody points it out, but we don't necessarily automatically see it. In fact, we, we don't see it mentioned a whole lot in the scriptures other than in Hebrews chapter number 11. But in fact, this connection between Isaac and Jesus is one of the most precious and foundational realities of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So the title of the message this morning is A Better Resurrection. A Better Resurrection. The big idea is, nice and short for you this morning, the big idea is this, because Jesus is risen, we have hope of eternal life with him. Because Jesus is risen, we have hope of eternal life with Him. We'll be, again, mainly in the 1 Corinthians 15 passage, but if you're in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, I want to show you the foundation of this, of this comparison, of this uh, idea of resurrection. And I noticed this as we were going through Hebrews chapter 11. If you remember, we spent about three weeks in it uh, not too long ago, and, uh, and I was preaching out of it, so I got to look at it a lot. <laughs> But uh, it's, it's an interesting phrase here that I noticed in this, uh, in this passage, starting in verse number 17. Um, and this is, this is what Hebrews actually defines as a figurative resurrection. So with Isaac, we have a figurative resurrection. And starting in verse number 17 of chapter 11, it says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. All right, so I didn't just come up with this on my own. All right, this is is from Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, So a figurative resurrection. Let's take a look at that uh, very briefly here because again, obviously we want to look at the true and better Isaac, right? We want to look at Christ. But I do want to see some interesting things here in this figurative resurrection of Isaac. It's interesting that the prospect of Isaac's death did not sway Abraham's faith in God. Did you ever notice that? The prospect of Isaac's death did not sway Abraham's faith in God. In fact, it says here that he was in the act of offering up his only son. He was in the act of it. Now, there's plenty of opportunities before Abraham gets to this point for God to say, "Okay, I, I know that you fear me. I know that you you love me. You obey me. Um, I, I I know that you you have proved yourself. Right? There's plenty of opportunities. He." He immediately, the next day, gets up and starts preparing everything and getting everything together to, to go on this journey. God could have stopped him then. He, he takes with him some servants, and they travel uh, three days. And three days later, God could have stopped him and said, okay, you've, you've gone three days. I, I, know that you, I know that you fear me. He leaves the servants there, and he takes his son and, and the wood and the fire, and, and he goes up the mountain And he begins to build this altar to the Lord. And God could have stopped him there and said, okay, I know that you fear. But it is not until he has bound his son and laid him upon the altar, and he is in the act of giving the death blow, that God stops him. He has gone all the way to the point of assuming that his son is going to die. This wasn't a game with Abraham. This wasn't, this wasn't a, well, hopefully God stops me. No, he went through the process with the assumption that his son was going to die. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was as good as dead. We look at, at what it says here, that he considered that God was able to raise him. He, he, that was the thought that was in his mind. In his mind, he looks at Isaac and he's gone all this way. He is ready to kill his son because God has required it of him. In his mind, Isaac is dead. And God is going to have to raise him up. And in Abraham's mind, God was going to raise him up. He believed that's exactly what was going to happen. He assumed that there would be a resurrection. Abraham assumed that there would be a resurrection. He knew that God was faithful to his promises, and so he assumed that God would raise up his son. See, he'd already followed God out of Ur of the Chaldees to this land where he would never possess anything but a grave in the time that he lived in it. He had followed the, the promises of God and he had, he had looked forward to the promises of God. And then, and then one of those promises came true. In this son, Isaac, in his old age, he fathers a son with his wife who was beyond the age of childbearing. This miraculous child through whom God had promised all these great things. And so in Abraham's mind, when God says, sacrifice your son to me, he was as good as dead because he was as good as alive. Because Abraham knew that God was faithful to his promises. And when God said, through Isaac, I will bring these things, Then God was going to have to raise him from the dead. And what does the writer of Hebrews say here? He says, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Figuratively speaking, God did raise Isaac from the dead. In Abraham's mind, God raised Isaac from the dead. See Isaac as one in the line of Christ as a type of Christ and his figurative resurrection points to Christ and his foundational resurrection. His foundational resurrection and that's where we see what we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 so if you're still in Hebrews jump back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 we'll be here for the rest of the morning. <clears throat> The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a foundational resurrection. It's not just another nice thing that's tacked on to what he has done for us. It is foundational to the gospel itself. And we see that here in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, starting in verse number 1. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, okay, here is the gospel. Probably the most succinct, clear explanation of the gospel in Scripture, in one place. All right? Starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that, excuse me, <clears throat> and that he appeared to Cephas then to the 12. So Paul is looking to the Corinthians and he's giving them the gospel. He says, this is the good news. This is, this is what you have believed, what you should have believed unless, you, unless your faith is in vain. This is the foundation of your faith. And he lists three things here. What are they? That Christ, a lot of you Awana kids should have this memorized, right? I know, I've I've heard you saying these verses, right? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again in accordance with the scriptures, right? So we see three aspects of the gospel, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to the gospel itself. You cannot have a complete gospel without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why is this resurrection so foundational? Why is it so important that Jesus Christ not only paid the price for our sins, not only died on the cross, not only was buried, but that he rose again the third day? Why is that so important? Well, a few verses down, Paul's going to give us the explanation here, starting in verse number 12. It says this, <clears throat> Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain." If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why is the resurrection of Christ so foundational? Because without it, there's no hope. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. Paul gives us several things here in this passage. He says that if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is still dead. He is not a risen all-powerful savior. He's just another man who lived a good life, was persecuted, hung on a cross and died. If the resurrection is not true, if the resurrection is not true then we preach the gospel in vain. There's no reason for us to go out and tell people of what Jesus Christ has done if he is not raised. If he's not raised, there's no power in that gospel. It's just a gospel of condemnation because there is no hope. If Jesus is not raised, then our faith is in vain. It's empty. It's worthless. Why? Because our faith is not just in a dead Savior. Our faith is in a risen, victorious Savior. Our faith is in vain. If, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then our faith is powerless. Not because it's powerful in itself, but because of who our faith is in. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, the one who's victorious over sin and death and hell. The power that raised Jesus from the grave. If it did not happen, it does not live in us. If the resurrection has not happened, then we are liars when we go out and we proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world, we do not speak the truth. We are liars and we should be ignored. If the resurrection did not happen, then the dead are dead and gone forever. Is that not one of the more blessed hopes that we have with the resurrection? Is that not only will we one day rise again, but all those who are in Christ will rise again and we will worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords together forever and ever and ever. We talk a lot about wanting to see relatives. And and I'll be honest with you, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't think scripture gives us a clear understanding of that. But assuming that we will, assuming that we'll recognize them, that that is a blessed hope. But if Jesus is not risen, then the dead are dead. There is no more life. There is nothing after this. They are gone forever. And essentially, nothing we do on this earth matters. If the dead are dead, and that's it, then nothing matters. If Jesus is not raised, then our hope cannot be for anything outside of this life. He says, Our hope is only in this life. And if our hope is only in this life, then we are pitiful people. It is a pitiful thing for us to come this morning and gather together and sing these songs to a dead Savior. That's pitiful. This is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so foundational to the gospel. This is why it is so important. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead is equally as important as the fact that he shed his blood on the cross because without the resurrection, there is no hope beyond this life. Have you ever stopped to think about that reality? We spend so much time talking about and and wondering at the beauty of Jesus Christ on the cross, shedding his blood taking upon himself the wrath of god for the sinfulness of man and rightfully so we should but how often do we just kind of throw in the resurrection as a side benefit as just kind of the ending of the trilogy that he was that he died that he was buried and that he rose again how often do we do we look at the resurrection just as a fact that we need to know and not as a wonderful Perfect attribute of the gospel, a necessary, a foundational attribute of the gospel. Do we really see the resurrection in that light? Or is it just another fact about Jesus that we need to believe? Without the resurrection, there is no hope. But Paul continues in verse 20. He says, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, if all of these things, if, if, if Jesus has not risen, all of these things are true. But in fact, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And because of that, hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Are you thankful for that this morning? Are you thankful that Jesus is alive? And because of that, we have hope. Paul has already given us proof of this reality. It's not enough for him to just say, but it's okay, guys. Jesus really did raise from the dead. He says, no, there's proof. We see it further up. We stopped before this, but in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 4 it says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And this is an interesting phrase. Most of whom have, are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why is that an interesting phrase? Well, what Paul's saying here is, look, Jesus Christ appeared to lots of people. And in fact, there's a whole group. There's 500 people, more than 500 people that he appeared to. And if you don't believe me, most of them are still alive. You can go check it with them. You can go ask them, hey, did you really see the risen Christ? Did you really see Jesus after he died and was buried? Did he really rise again? Did you really see him? Paul's saying, look, I don't just have proof from what people have told me. You can go talk to them yourself. They are still alive. Now, obviously for us, they're not. (laughs) Um, They're alive spiritually if they put their faith in Christ. But when he's writing to the Romans here, he says most of them are alive. You can go. You can verify that Jesus Christ is risen by their testimony. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Even Paul had seen the risen Christ. Even Paul had fellowshiped with the risen Christ and and it is through these witnesses that we understand that Christ's resurrection is a reality. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational because it's true, because it's true. It's been witnessed by many people. First Peter chapter one, verse three says this, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is foundational because Christ's resurrection provides a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope, where our hope is not in somebody who has died for us, it's in somebody who has died for us, but is living for us. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people to everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by what? By raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational because his resurrection is proof of the coming judgment and of Jesus Christ as the coming judge. It is foundational because of judgment, Romans eight thirty three through thirty four, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, did you ever notice that? More than that, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us because of Christ's resurrection? we have been provided an intercessor. If Jesus had not raised from the dead, He would not stand before the Father on our behalf. He would not offer His wounds to the Father in payment for our sin. He would not display before the Father His perfect righteousness. 1 Peter 3. 20 through 21, because they formerly did not obey God, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Catch that. Baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt. It's not a cleansing mechanism. What is baptism? It's an appeal to God. An appeal to God for a good conscience through what? Through our works? No. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we now have a perfect appeal of a perfect conscience to God. The resurrection is a powerful thing. It's an important thing. It's a foundational thing. It's a divisive thing. Several passages here in the book of Acts, starting in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, what? The resurrection of the dead. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to what? To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Chapter 17, verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Did you catch that? Some mocked. But others said, We will hear You again about this. It's a divisive reality. Acts 23, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. What was the contested attribute of the gospel? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is it that the high priest sought to hide by paying money to guards? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection is foundational. Because the resurrection is true, Jesus is alive. Because the resurrection is true, we preach a powerful gospel. Because the resurrection is true, our faith is sure. It does not waver. It is sure. Because Jesus has raised from the dead, we are proclaimers of the truth, not a lie. Truth. Our faith is powerful because it is placed in one who has resurrection power, who has defeated sin and death. That is the one in whom our faith is placed. Jesus is alive. and Because the resurrection is true, we can now be freed from the power and the penalty of sin. Jesus is alive. And because of that resurrection, those who died in Christ will be made alive and we will see them again. Because the resurrection is true, our hope is not only for now, but it's for eternity. Because of that, we are joy-filled people. We are not ones to be pity. We are ones to be joyful. How often do we live our lives lacking joy? Sure, there's hard times. There's scary times. But we have a risen Savior. And we have hope. Isaac's figurative resurrection points to Christ's foundational resurrection which enables for us a future resurrection. A future resurrection. <clears throat> there in verse 20 it says, "But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Where Adam brought death, which we looked at the very first in the line of Christ. Our disobedient representative, our rebel representative in Adam. Because of him, we have death. Because of Jesus, we have life. Not by the removal of death. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus didn't bring us life by removing the consequence of sin. Rather, Jesus brings us life by triumphing over it. Think about that. He didn't just get rid of death. He won. He rose in victory over death. Christ's resurrection is a promise of a future resurrection for those who are in him. I see this in two ways. First, I see that there's a spiritual resurrection. I know we've quoted Ephesians chapter 2 ad nauseum, so I won't quote it here. You know it. Probably have it memorized doubly so by now. But we who were dead in our trespasses and sin, he has made alive. Spiritual resurrection. Romans chapter 6 gives us another perspective of this. Verses 1 through 11 says this What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There is a spiritual resurrection that Christ gives to us. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Is that not a blessed hope? He will never die again. He did once and he rose in victory and death has no more dominion over him. He says that right there. He will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. We sing those words and we enjoy singing those words and we, and we swell in the song when we sing those words and then we go out and we live like we're still slaves of sin. We go out and we act like we just can't get over it. And it's true in our own strength, we can't. But the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. And Paul says, consider then yourselves dead to sin and walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that you've been called to. Walk in a way that honors and glorifies God. Because of the resurrection, we no longer are slaves to sin, but we are alive to God. So live like people who are alive. Don't live as if you are still shackled to sin. I know probably all of us have struggles with sin, have besetting sins. Is that not at its base Reality, simply a lack of faith that we truly are free from sin. Now, will we ever live that verse out perfectly? No. We still have the flesh. The, the flesh and the spirit war against each other. But are we daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, walking in a way that pleases the Lord? Do we see a progression in our life, a change in our life, to where we are no longer giving ourselves over as slaves to sin, as it says later there in in Romans 6, but rather we are living as slaves to God? Do we see that change progressing? If not, can I challenge you to really evaluate If you are a follower of Christ, if you are in Christ, because not only is there spiritual resurrection, but there is a physical resurrection. And really there's two. There's a resurrection to judgment and a resurrection to life. Resurrection to judgment, Acts 24, verse 15 says this, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, Paul's talking about the Jews, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The Jewish people had an understanding that there would be a time where all who are dead are raised. And there will be a judgment of those who are unjust. John five, twenty-eight through twenty-nine says this, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Of course, Revelation chapter twenty, starting in verse eleven, says this Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As believers, we have a hope in a future resurrection. But if you are not in Christ, the future resurrection is a horrible thing. It is a terrible thing because it is a resurrection to judgment and a resurrection to a second and eternal death. What about this resurrection to life? John eleven twenty five 25-26, as Lazarus is lying in the grave, Jesus is speaking to Martha and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Romans 8:11: "If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His spirit, who dwells in you." First Thessalonians 4:13 through18, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, therefore, comfort, encourage one another with these words. As we look at this lineage of hope, these men who were types and shadows of the one whose birth we celebrate this season, let us remember the hope of resurrection. Isaac, a figurative resurrection, points to Christ, whose foundational resurrection provides a future resurrection for all who repent and believe this gospel, the good news that we proclaim of this baby born in a manger. May we be encouraging one another with these words. Father, we thank you. That we get to rejoice at this time of this baby that is born, Emmanuel, God with us. The very God, the one true God, come to earth, taking on flesh, humbling himself, being made in the form of a servant, so that he could become obedient unto death, death on a cross but not only so that he could die, Lord, but so that he could be raised and that he could stand before you as our intercessor, as our mediator. Father, there is nothing that we have done to deserve that. It is only by your grace that we stand here in the shadow of of the law's command. Christ, the perfect sacrifice, has taken the wrath for us and he has risen in victory over the sin that has enslaved us and the death that will one day take us. And because of that, he provides for us a living hope. God, help us to live in the reality of that living hope. Help us not to be caught up in the day-to-day mundane. Help us not to be caught up in the, in the hardness and in the, in the hardships and the trials of life, but help us in all of those things to look to Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior, who has given for us a better resurrection. And may we live in such a way that honors you and glorifies you. And may we share this gospel, this good news of Jesus' death and burial and his powerful resurrection to a world that needs to hear it. And through that, may you draw. May you draw men and women, boys and girls, to be a part of your body. To be among the throng that will one day cast their crowns at your feet, that will one day bow. Bow will one day sing worthy is the lamb who was slain god we look forward to that with joy and anticipation even so lord come quickly in jesus name we pray amen